0: You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We resume our study of biblical theology today by continuing to examine why we should believe that the Bible is the Word of God and should therefore submit to its authority. Dr. Spencer, we have been addressing the Bible's testimony about itself. And last time we discussed the fact that a central issue in this regard is authority. God has ultimate authority, and therefore his word has ultimate authority. We ended by noting that Jesus himself spoke with authority, and not only affirmed the Ten Commandments, but gave us a deeper understanding of them. What else do we need to say about this topic? I think the main point is that the
1: Bible speaks with authority, and we need to take that claim seriously. It's God speaking. Jesus Christ himself spoke clearly about the authority of the Old Testament, for example, as we discussed in section 4. We noted then, for example, that in John 10, verse 35, Jesus said that the Scripture cannot be broken. But there are many other verses we could cite. For example, in Luke 22:37, Jesus said that what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. His point was that the Old Testament was a completely reliable witness to future events. And more specifically that it had in many places and in many details prophesied his coming and what would happen to him. When Jesus spoke with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection were told in Luke twenty four twenty seven that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The main topic of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament tells us about sin and about God's plan to deal with sin. There is a progressive
0: revelation of God's eternal plan of salvation in the Bible. And that revelation begins in Genesis 3, right after the fall, doesn't it? Yes, it
1: does. In Genesis 3.15, we have what is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, which simply means the first or original version of the gospel message. Most people have heard the story, but before I tell it, I want to emphasize that this story is factual, not mythological. So here's the story. After eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve hid from God. But when God called to them and they confessed their sin, he then pronounced the curse that would fall on them and their posterity as a result of their sin. And that curse was death, both spiritual death and physical death here and eternal hell hereafter. Adam and Eve immediately lost communion with God, which is the result of spiritual death, and they immediately started to age and move inexorably toward their physical death as well. And finally, and worst of all, they and all their natural descendants became subject to eternal punishment in hell. But God also pronounced a curse on Satan, who had appeared as a serpent, and that curse included the gospel, which means good news. In verse 15, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This statement that the offspring of Eve would crush Satan's head is a reference to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which he would defeat Satan totally by freeing his people from their bondage to sin and Satan. So when God pronounced his curse on man, he also gave
0: them the gospel of salvation at the same time. There was hope. And as you said, there is a progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament. There
1: most definitely is. This isn't the time to go to it in detail because we want to stay focused on what the Bible claims about itself, but I think it deserves mention now and it provides an important piece of evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible's claims. So what needs to be mentioned at this point is simply that the progressive revelation throughout the Old Testament includes dozens of detailed prophecies about the Messiah or Savior. Messiah is a Hebrew word which means anointed one. And while a person can be anointed for various different offices, such as a priest or a king, the Old Testament also speaks of the Messiah, who is God's anointed Savior of the world. For example, we read about him in Psalm 2, where we read in verses 1 and 2, Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The anointed one in that verse
0: is Jesus Christ. Perhaps it would be good for some of our listeners to explain who exactly the Lord is in that verse. I think most have heard Jesus called the Lord Jesus Christ, so there may be some who are confused when we hear the Lord being spoken of one person and His anointed one being spoken of another person. The word Lord in this passage,
1: which is in all capital letters in our English Bibles, is the Hebrew tetragrammaton, which simply means four letters. Biblical Hebrew writing did not use vowels, so we aren't sure how to pronounce the word, but it's usually rendered as either Jehovah or Yahweh. In any event, it's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. It comes from the Hebrew verb, to be, and so we can translate it if it's spoken by God as I am, or if it's spoken about him as he is. In either case, the point is clear. God is the only one who can say, I am, in an absolute sense. He is eternal and unconditional. We, on the other hand, like all creatures, have not existed eternally, nor do we exist independently. We'll cover the nature of God in detail in later sessions, but the Bible reveals to us that God is triune, meaning that he exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's an incredibly difficult concept to grasp, but it is
0: absolutely not a contradiction, and it is a clear teaching of Scripture, as we'll see later on. All right, now you were speaking about the Messiah, or God's Anointed One, who is referred to in Psalm 2. Right, and my point was simply
1: that the Greek word for anointed is Christos, which is transliterated into English as Christ. So when we speak of Jesus Christ, we're speaking about Jesus, the Anointed One, or in other words, the Messiah. All of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, the son born to a young virgin named Mary, who was engaged to be married to the carpenter Joseph. And the Old Testament revelation includes far more than just details about his birth, life, death, and resurrection. It also includes a tremendous amount of information about the justice of God and how the death of Jesus can serve as an atonement to pay for the sins of his people. Now, this is, again, not the time for us to get into that detail, but I want to clearly make the point that the Old and New Testaments are part of one revelation. They are not two separate revelations. It is all the revelation of God telling us who we are, where we came from, what our problem is, and how God has solved that problem. And in speaking about the detailed prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, I've always thought that they were truly amazing evidence for the fact that the Bible is God's divinely inspired word. How else could you explain the detailed fulfillment of these prophecies about Christ? Only God can accurately tell us about the future, and we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that these prophecies were truly written long before the time of Christ. No reasonable argument can be made as it used to be that someone cooked the books to make it look that way. Certainly predicting the future requires authority. Yes, and thank you for bringing us back to this question of authority. Only God has the power and authority to bring about what he intends, and so only God has the ability to
0: accurately tell us about the future.
1: Now, I noticed that you didn't
0: say God can accurately predict the future.
1: Yeah, you're quite right, and that was, as you surmised, deliberate. To predict the future would imply that God can look ahead and see what will happen, which is certainly true. But the Bible goes much further and tells us that God has ordained what will happen. But we'll leave that for a future session and get back to this issue of authority. We've been making the case that the Bible claims authority and have extended that case to show that Jesus himself claimed authority. In fact, one of the most wonderful examples of this is the story of Jesus healing a paralytic. The story is told to us in Matthew chapter 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, And there's a paralytic who has four wonderful friends. These friends have obviously heard about Jesus and have seen him perform miracles, so they want their friend to be healed. And they carry him to a village in Capernaum at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus at that time was teaching and healing. But there's such a large crowd that they can't get near Jesus. So they go up onto the roof of the house that Jesus is in, and they make a hole in the roof and lower their friend on his mat so that he's in front of Jesus. Just imagine how everyone's attention would be riveted on this man. That was certainly a pretty bold maneuver. And what did Jesus say to the man? We're told in Luke 5.20 that Jesus said, "'Friend, your sins are
0: forgiven.'" I'm gonna hazard a guess that that was not the response he and his friends were looking for. I think your guess is a good one. Jesus often surprised people,
1: but always with a purpose. And we quickly find out what the purpose was in this case. It was to reveal his authority that he is, in fact, God. We read in the very next verse that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, of course, that was precisely the point. Then in verses 22 to 25, we read that Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. I'd say that Jesus made his point pretty clearly. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. Jesus is God. He knew what they were thinking, and far more importantly, he has authority to forgive sins. So the Bible has authority because it is the Word of God, and Jesus has authority because he himself is God. And Jesus also gave authority to his apostles to preach
0: the gospel and to rule the church. Okay, now you're treading on thin ice with many modern Christians. They don't like the idea of the church having any real authority. And What would you say to them? I would turn to the Word of God, as always.
1: After Jesus' resurrection, he gave his disciples what is called the Great Commission. We read in Matthew 28:18 to 20 that Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he goes on to say, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Notice that Jesus didn't make suggestions. He commanded and the church is to teach people to obey these commands. And the church is clearly given authority by God to do so. For example, we're given a command in Hebrews 13:7, which says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This clearly establishes that this section in Hebrews 13 is speaking about leaders in the church. Then in verse 17, we read, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we are to obey our church leaders and submit to their authority. But notice that they are men who must give an account. And it is God to whom they will have to give an account. So they should lead for the benefit of those who are under them. And that is why the writer says it would be of no advantage to us
0: if we don't obey. And of course, it isn't just church authority that we should obey. In Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote that everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And
1: we need to remember that he wrote that while he was living under the very wicked rule of the Roman Empire. As the passage notes, there's no authority except that which God has established. God has given us clear lines of authority. In the family, a husband has authority over the wife, a father and mother have authority over their children, church leaders
0: have authority over the members of the church, and civil leaders have authority over their citizens. You know, Since this idea of authority is so alien to our society, I think it would be good to remind everyone of one thing you said earlier, and that's that biblical authority should always be exercised for the benefit of those who are under you. Yeah, that's
1: right. Our culture has a problem with authority, but authority is
0: necessary, and it's good
1: if it is not abused. Someone has to have the final say. Think about a company, for example. If you get all the managers together to make some decision and they can't come to a consensus someone has to have the authority to make the final decision. And if the company is operating properly, the others will then all get behind that decision and do everything they can to make it work. Now, I think we're very near the end of our time for today, so I'd like to read a passage from the book I mentioned last time by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The book is called Authority, and on page 60 he has a wonderful summary about the progressive revelation we've discussed in the Old Testament and the gifting given to the apostles and others for writing the New Testament. He says... Here is God's revelation of Himself, given in parts and portions in the Old Testament, with an increasing clarity and with a culminating finality, coming eventually in the fullness of times to the perfect, absolute, final revelation in God the Son. He in turn enlightens and reveals His will and teaching to these apostles, endows them with a unique authority, fills them with the needed ability and power and gives them the teaching that is essential to the well-being of the
0: church and God's people. We can build only upon this one unique authority. That is a wonderful summary to end our discussion of the Bible's teaching about itself. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will be presenting external evidence to corroborate the Bible's claim to be the Word of God. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Reverend P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.